Bridge lending is typically higher yielding capital and bridge lenders need to recycle their capital because there's more cost in a bridge loan than just the rate, right? There's also closing fees and stuff like that. So if there's some strategy we're doing, like uh, you know, a renovation apartment building, you're probably gonna put like a 24 month term, something like that on it with extensions that might be available. The term is usually not price perfection, but price to the area of like, you want the guy to complete whatever he's planning on doing and then move on. It kind of gives uh, an incentive to really complete the work as fast as possible and then kind of return it, refinance or sell or whatever they're gonna do on the way out. This is the We Love Real Estate Podcast. My name is Sean and I love real estate. In this weekly podcast, we interview the top real estate investors and professionals who share their knowledge and expertise to help you become a real estate investment boss. So if you love real estate and want to level up your investment game, then you've come to the right place. And now, on to the show. What's going on investors and welcome to episode 263 of the We Love Real Estate Podcast with Sean Pan. On today's episode, we have Jake Clopton. Jake is the president of Clopton Capital a national commercial mortgage broker. In this episode, Jake will talk about the different types of commercial bridge loans that investors can use if they plan on getting into commercial real estate. He'll talk about the different types of commercial loans that are out there as well as the typical pricing and fees for these loans as well. So if you want to learn more about commercial bridge loans, then you need to listen to this episode. As always, if you're an active real estate investor and need a hard money loan for your next project, then you can reach out to me directly at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Enjoy the show and I'll see you next week. All right, Jake, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Go ahead and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Absolutely. And thanks for having me on. My name is Jake Clopton. I'm the president of Clopton Capital. I, I started this company about 14 years ago. We are a nationwide finance broker. So what we do is we connect borrowers with you know competitive capital sources for all types of commercial real estate assets. We're in the one to, you know, $100 million space, so I like to say small to middle market, right? And, you know, all asset classes, we do low rate fixed perm, bridge, construction, um, and then we also arrange uh, joint venture equity. I like how you say one to 100 million is like low to mid, because for us, that's more than we would ever touch. Shockingly, it, it is, you know, and I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll be doing like a $20 million loan and, you know, it'll be too small for somebody. I'm like... Okay, sure. <laughs> That's a lot of money to me, but you know, it, it isn't in the grand scheme of things in the whole capital market. So. so why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the loan products that you guys offer? And I guess, who are the type of people that get these type of larger loans? I guess in our opinion, because like I said, for most people who listen to this podcast, they're mostly dealing in the one to four unit space, maybe going to a 10 unit or 20 unit sometime in the future. But really, like they're probably not going to touch anything in a $15 million space. Yeah, I mean, eventually, I, I feel like most people that are in like the one to four, maybe like five to 10 unit space, like, you know, getting up to like a 20, 30, 40 unit apartment building is like, you know, the goal, right? And a lot of the people that we that I deal with, you know, I'm kind of helping, you know, go from, you know, the classified residential world of like one to four units, and then going up into more commercial properties, right? And then, you know, once you hit the commercial space, the type of lending really changes. And and really, it's once you get above a million bucks, right? I mean, the amount of capital sources you can use significantly opens up, and the different loan products significantly opens up. I would say that that's the biggest people coming from residential commercial is that there's really like a learning curve to figuring out like how exactly commercial works versus residential. A lot of the deals we do end up being like either we just do straightforward commercial mortgages, right? But we end up doing a lot of shorter term product like 
value add scenarios, bridge lending and construction, right? So similar to like, if you've got somebody that's buying a one or four unit, they're going to rehab it and flip it or something like that, right? People do that with apartment buildings too. It's just, you know, the biggest difference ends up being on the equity stack side because the equity checks are much bigger. So a lot of the sponsors that we deal with with the products that we use are syndicators, right? So they've syndicated a lot of investment capital and they're bringing in multiple partners, stuff like that. And so, you know, really to scale and grow, um, the vast majority, I mean, unless you've got a father-in-law that's got 10 million bucks in cash and he doesn't invest in every deal, right? Um, you're going to have to, you know, network and raise equity and syndicate out to really be able to scale and grow in that space. And that's a lot of the guys that we deal with. Got it. So most of them are syndicators and they're raising funds to, I guess, fund the down payment and closing costs. And then you come in with your commercial loan to cover the rest. Right. So let's say, you know, you've got somebody that's buying like a $10 million apartment building. Um, well, let's say $10 million total cost, right? So an $8 million acquisition plus $2 million of rehab. Um, we're potentially going in, to, in doing 85% of cost, something like that, right? So we do $8.5 million. Bucks. And that's a combination of, you know, like acquisition dollars and then a capital expenditure reserve for the renovation. And then the sponsors, right, the syndicator, is bringing, you know, one and a half million bucks to the table as the down payment for the deal. And that down payment is, you know, a accumulation of all the investor capital that's coming in. There, there's certain, you know, things we really look for inside that equity stack. Like we want the syndicator to have real money in the game, right? So typically the split that we'll end up seeing is like, you know, the general partners, which is the syndicator, has maybe 10% of the equity in the deal. Um, and then the, the other 90% is broken up through smaller investors. Okay. And can we go over some of the loan products that you guys offer? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So kind of following along with uh, the, the shorter term value add stuff, you know, we do uh, bridge lending, right? So bridge lending is going to be your shorter term transitional type of uh, strategies. So either there's a distress scenario or there, you know, you're coming in and you're doing rehab and repositioning the building or, you know, just anything that's going to be really short term and you want to avoid you know, longer term fixed rates and prepayment penalties, or it's just not ready to go to a perm lender yet. Uh, we also do ground up construction for all asset classes, and we also do low rate fixed permanent loans, right? So 10 year fixed, 30 year amortization. A lot of the products that we do, we also do non recourse, which is probably not something you guys see a lot in the residential space. Um, so, you know, non recourse meaning no personal guarantees that typically are attached to the loan. Although there are things called like carve outs that, you know, the general partners still kind of have to sign on for like fraud, theft, bad boy act, stuff like that. Yeah. And it's interesting. So like I mentioned earlier, I'm actually a harmony lender myself. We focus on bridge loans, but on the residential side, like one to four unit. And I'm interested to hear like, what are the similarities or differences between ours and your products? So in terms of like the loans, how you say short term, but like, what is the typical term length for those bridge loans? Anywhere from, you know, 12 to 36 months. The term is really going to be dependent on what the strategy is for the most part. Bridge lending is typically higher yielding capital and bridge lenders need to recycle their capital for the most part, right? Because there's more cost in a bridge loan than just the rate, right? There's also closing fees and stuff like that. So bridge lenders like to recycle their capital for the most part as quickly as possible. If there's some strategy we're doing, like, uh, you know, a renovation apartment building, you're probably going to put like a 24 month term, something like that on it. 
with extensions that might be available. The term is usually not price perfection, but price to the area of like, you want the guy to complete whatever he's planning on doing and then move on, right? Um, and it, it kind of gives uh, an incentive to, you know, for the sponsors to really complete the work as fast as possible and then kind of return or refinance or sell or whatever they're going to do on the way up. And then do you guys have a prepayment penalty associated with it? We've got a lot of different types of lenders with a lot of different types of programs. Some have prepayment penalties, some don't. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a prepayment penalty the way it's structured, though. A lot of it's called yield maintenance, right, and or a minimum yield. And the way that you'll see a lot of it presented in term sheets is, you know, they even may say, hey, there's no prepay. But if you pay us off any time before 12 months is up, you owe the rest of the 12 months of interest. Right. So the lender had a, a minimum yield that they needed to make to put out the dollars of a minimum of 12 months of whatever their rate is on the deal. And you're going to owe that to them regardless of when you pay it off. And yield maintenance, I see range anywhere from six months to 18 months, really, d- depending on who the lender is, how long the term is, you know, and what the deal is. Yeah. So we're seeing the same thing for ours as well. For our bridge loans, like the 12 and 18 month product that we have, we don't have any like yield maintenance, but then for the two-year, three-year, five-year terms, is usually half of the duration of the loan. Right. Is that kind of what you're seeing as well? Yeah, I, I do see it typically somewhere around like half or, you know, two-thirds of the, the term of the loan. Sometimes I do see like a 24-month loan and the 18-month uh, yield maintenance, but I, I think a lot of those longer ones end up getting negotiated down to about half. Okay. And what does closing time look like for a bridge loan on the commercial side? That's, again, something that's going to be different for, like, every group. I mean, we have some guys that will close as fast as, like, two weeks, right? I mean, others are going to be, even though it's a bridge loan, it's more like a 45-day close. The guys that will move very quickly and maybe don't even need an appraisal and stuff like that, I mean, as you can imagine, those are probably going to be the higher price guys. They're going to take more risks and maybe they close on appraisal, you know, all this stuff. But I would say, you know, the the down-the-middle time frame is probably around 30 days to close a deal. So I guess like transition to the next question, what does the price look like for a commercial bridge loan? They would range anywhere from, you know, LIBOR plus 250 all the way up to 11, 12%. Every lender in this space is a little different. And a lot of it, you know, depends on how they raise and leverage their own capital. For instance, some lenders don't use leverage at all in their own balance sheet. And everything they do is just their own money they lend out. Those are typically going to be higher yielding guys, right? So if you think about it as their own equity that they're trying to get a certain return on, they maybe need to return anywhere from 9 to 12% to their fund. And they're going to have to pass all that cost directly onto the borrower. There's other lenders that will use, you know, leverage. Like some banks will, you know, give them an A piece and let's say 5% and they'll lever their B piece against that. So let's say it's a $10 million loan, right? You've got some bank coming in for, let's say, $5 million bucks of that, or maybe six. And then the actual lender who is lending the money to you, it really only has maybe $4 million bucks in the deal. But the yield that they're getting is much higher, right, than your actual coupon because there's an arm between what the bank is doing and what they're doing. Those guys are typically going to be like your more middle price guys, uh, maybe like mid-single digits, something like that, maybe 5 6%. Then there's another type of lender out there that uses something called CLOs. Those are going to be the hyper-competitive LIBOR plus 250 to 400, somewhere in there type of money. Um, CLOs, securitized product. And the typical CLO deals I see are for like, you know, a little bit larger apartment buildings, maybe some commercial stuff like that. 
But, you know, I would say, like, the more creativity and the more commercial versus habitational the asset gets, the more the loan starts to uh, push more towards that, like, balance sheet type lender. So, you know, if it's a straightforward apartment deal with a little bit of CapEx, that's probably a good CLO deal. So I guess this is a yeah, huge range. And by the way, for our listeners who don't know, what does LIBOR stand for? And, you know, what does LIBOR plus 250 look like as of like today? It's like the fours, the fives. LIBOR is, you know, there's posted rates like LIBOR, you know, London interbank offered rate, right? There's varying, you know, durations of LIBOR from where from like one day to one year. The, the typical LIBOR duration that most of these funds use is like 30 days. LIBOR is actually being phased out. So by this time next year, it's going to be all SOFR. Uh, so it's going to be SOFR plus something. So it really, it's just a very simple calculation, right? You take LIBOR plus 250 would mean the current LIBOR rate, you know, let's say it's 0.3, right? And then plus 250, it's really plus 2.5%. Right. So the actual rate would be like 2.8. Um, that, that's just kind of how you stack them on top of each other. And 2.8 sounds like a really low rate for a bridge loan. <laughs> that, that would be a really low rate. Yeah, that's that's like, you know, you're up in like the 40 million dollar space for like an apartment deal. Yeah. And then what can someone expect to pay for, let's say, origination fees or processing fees on top of the rate? Anywhere from one to two percent Okay, is what I typically see in the market. Look, if you've got some really distressed scenario, you know, and, you know, let's say it's a hotel that's just burning money and, you know, you've got to save it from bankruptcy or something like that, you're going to go to hard money lender. I don't really call that bridge lending, right? That That's hard money space. That's four or five points and 12%. I mean, that's not a bridge loan. That's just basically a worst case scenario. But the vast majority of bridge lending out there is, you know, one to 2%. Um, sometimes I see 1% with like a half a point exit fee. Something like that. It's just another way of, you know, kind of less points up front and some of it moved to the back end. But that, that's going to be your average out there. And then since you're a broker, do you charge your fees on top or do you work with the banks to work that? Good question. Uh, so we typically have to charge a fee outside of whatever the lender's charging, right? So depending on the loan amount, we typically have about a 1% broker fee. Okay. And then where do you guys lend in? Um, so we can really operate anywhere. You know, we've been around for 14 years, so I've done a little bit of everything, a little bit everywhere. So, you know, like I said, I mean, we'll take a look at any location. You know, I'm kind of geographically agnostic. We have capital sources that will go into every market. You know, the way that we look at deals is if the economics, the property work, and, you know, it's in a, an area where there's good demand drivers for it, we can usually make it work. Okay. And in terms of LTVs, I guess, how do you determine maximum LTV for a project? Loan value is really going to be, I mean, for the most part, depending on property type, right? And, you know, Multifamily is going to be your probably your highest loan of values you get out there. And bridge lending, you know, we're going up to 85% for just straightforward commercial mortgages. Um, you can get up to 80. That that's really going to be the you know the highest you can go for commercial stuff. Typical LTVs like an industrial building or something like that we see is somewhere around 75%. And then as you kind of move into I would say more riskier asset types or just maybe stuff that's less in favor like retail or hotels, you know, it starts to pull back from there to 70, maybe 65% for hotels for some types of deals. But yeah, I mean, multifamily, I think is always going to have your highest uh, LTVs. And going back to the location question, do you guys need to be in like a major metropolitan area? Or like, do you guys care about the actual location of the structure, like population size, etc? No, not necessarily. We don't need to be in a primary market. And actually, a lot of the stuff we'll end up doing is in 
secondary markets um, or more tertiary where let's say, you know, you've got a large loan amount in like a secondary market and just the banking around there is small local regional banks and they just they just can't deal with that size of deal in, in their market. So, no, I mean, we'll really look at like in any market. Um, it's just the deal just got to make sense. Right. OK. And in terms of like requirements, what, what requirements do you guys have to qualify for this commercial loan? going to be different for every deal for the most part. But let's say we've just got a straightforward commercial mortgage. You know, I mean, you're down the middle answer there is going to be anywhere, you know, 75% LTV or less, one and a quarter debt service. I mean, as far as like sponsor requirements, you know, I, I do get that, asked that quite a bit, right? It's like, how do I qualify as like an appropriate sponsor or like a guarantor for this property? And, you know, I, I think it's a hard question really to answer because each deal is a little different. But I think the down the middle answer most people are going to give you is, you know, to have a net worth that's somewhat similar to the loan amount and then somewhere around 10% liquidity of the loan amount outside of the deal you're doing, right? So million dollar loan, million dollar net worth, 100,000 bucks in the bank outside the property, that guy gets through. They're not like hard and fast rules, right? I mean, it's not saying that, you know, you're not good, never going to get something done if you don't meet those. There's always exceptions, but that's the down the middle answer I think most people are going to give you. What about in terms of credit score or background? You know, if they've had something happen in their past, what's that scenario look like? You know, as far as credit score, like a lot of bridge lenders aren't that worried about credit score, right? But if you're dealing with more banks or permanent mortgages, stuff like that, I mean, 650 is really the bare minimum I've seen a lot of people, you know, deal with. If you've got marks in your past, like you had a BK or you had a foreclosure, I mean, listen, we're in real estate, right? If somebody's in real estate for long enough, eventually something's going to happen, right? And really what usually what we do is kind of explain those away. You don't have a lot of judgments or outstanding liabilities, stuff like that, but you've got something that happened five years ago. We really just write a letter of explanation and make sure it's fully disclosed up front. And it's usually not that big of a deal. I've done loans for guys that had three quarters of a million dollars in outstanding tax liens. Right. I did one for a guy that just came out of bankruptcy. So there are ways to, you know, I would say bad marks on like the sponsor side work as long as the economics of the deal work. Right. I mean, if I've got a pristine scenario with good economics and it's a good property, but the guy's got some skeletons in the closet, I'd say that deal gets done. But if I've got a bunch of skeletons and then also the property is, you know, really on the line, that's going to be challenging. Okay, makes sense. And can we go over the difference between recourse loans and non-recourse loans in terms of pricing or even just getting the deal passed through? Sure. I mean, pricing, you know, really doesn't come into the whole recourse, non-recourse conversation that much because there's competitive recourse lenders and there's also very competitive non-recourse lenders. What it really comes down to at the end of the day mainly is just structure of the actual financing itself. And then what that means potentially if there's a, you know, the property goes foreclosure or bankruptcy. And it, like, as far as structure, like all non-recourse loans are gonna, for the most part going to be structured in like a special purpose entity, meaning the property has got to be held in an LLC by itself, right? That's bankruptcy remote from any other assets. And then, you know, there's going to be other things that come along with the non-recourse, like carve outs, right? So even though it's non-recourse, you know, there still needs to be a guarantor that identifies a property against fraud, misrepresentation, theft, bad boy acts. Uh, a lot of lenders like to throw in environmental indemnities and stuff like that. So, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's, there's never a scenario where recourse could spring on you. It still can. But generally, if the economics of the property fail, 
they're not going to come after you, right? And what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to hand them back the keys and move on. And it's supposed to be a much faster way for the lender themselves just to take over the property, sell it and move on, right? And recoup what they can and just move on. If you were in a non-recourse loan and let's say you filed bankruptcy to block the lender from taking the property, guess what? Now you just made the loan full recourse to yourself, right? So there, there's always going to be ways that, you know, if you don't play ball with the way the loan docs are set up, it's going to spring recourse on you. But if you, you know, abide by the loan docs and what you sign, then you're good to go. I mean, recourse, that, that's just right, right? Just full personal recourse. And Depending on what state you're in, right? I mean, if it's a single action state where they can only they can decide to go up the property or you, right? I mean, it's going to depend on, you know, that's going to depend on how, how much, you know, liability you have. But, you know, I mean, at full personal recourse, I mean, all your assets are up for grabs, potentially, if there's a deficit from them selling the property or whatnot. So. Okay. And going back to qualifying for the deal, you mentioned that you know, you're asking usually for about one and a quarter DSCR. Can you explain what that means to our listeners and also... How would you expect someone to have a 1.25 DSCR if they need a bridge loan? Because maybe the property has, I guess, to be you know, renovated again to fulfill that. Sure. So one and a quarter DSCR is, you know, let's say you've got a, a loan. It's a 10-year fixed, 25-year amortization, and you figure out what the debt payments are, right? One and a quarter just means you have $1.25 NOI for every dollar debt payment that you need to make, right? So that's really a calculation is your NOI divided by the debt service. That would we need to equal a minimum of 1.25. I mean, as far as, you know, one and a quarter in bridge loans, it doesn't really apply that much to bridge loans. It probably applies more to commercial mortgages, right, for like stabilized properties. I mean, as far as a bridge loan, you can go into it with no cash flow, you know, negative debt service and structure and interest reserve, right, for the interim. It's just they want to make sure that on the way out, right, on the stabilized value, that you're going to be able to at least achieve a one and a quarter or, or whatever it is to exit their property, right? Whatever the refinance market's going to look like and, you know, and make sure that your assumptions are proven out, you know, through either lease comps, sales comps or whatever it is, so that you're going to be able to get that bridge loan taken out by a refinance. Okay. So basically they want to make sure that your performer can hit a 1.25 DSCR realistically so that you're not left holding the bag on a bridge loan for a multifamily property that you can't refinance in the future. Exactly. You don't want to end up being over leveraged when you're trying to refinance out and then, you know, the bridge lender is just stuck and you can't get out. Now, what does a refinance look like on the commercial side? You know, because I think from what I understand, at least when you try to get a commercial loan, they usually want to see like, well, like two year trailing, all that stuff. How does that work if you just got it leased up and you just got it renovated? Not necessarily two year tra trailing, right? I mean, it, it depends on what the property is. So for multifamily, you know, we can underwrite to like a T3, like a trailing three month. You know, just to refinance it, you're going to, they're going to want you to be somewhere around like a 90% uh, occupancy for more like retail or, or stuff that has leases that with like commercial tenants that attach to it. I mean, again, we're underwriting to the current rent roll, right? So, I mean, it, this is the thing about like a deal that was just newly constructed, right? And then just got leased up. There's no way it's going to have a trailing 24 months, right? So we're really going to underwrite to like what the current rent roll is for that property. The properties that, you know, are kind of an exception to that type of underwriting is, let's say like a hotel. Hotels underwrite to a minimum of a trailing 12 month. So, I mean, that type of property or something that has more of like a business type operation to it is going to underwrite to a T12. So maybe like a self-storage sale, something like that. Um, because, you know, you want to take into account a full year's worth of like business operations and not just get a small snapshot. But if you've got something that's got, you know, multifamily or has leases attached to it, you can pretty much underwrite to what the current rent roll is and then, you know, kind of back out like a vacancy factor um, to underwrite it. 
Now, can we go over, like, I guess, a scenario, you know, because again, I haven't done this before for a commercial. Let's assume that I'm trying to buy a multifamily property over here in Texas. And let's say it's like a $5 million apartment complex. And just for easy numbers, let's say it's what, like 100 units or so. So given that scenario, and let's say that it's 50% occupied, so half of it's vacant as well. If I come to you, what do you think you would be able to, I guess, offer us in terms of LTV? And what would be a ballpark pricing for something like this? Sure. All right. So let's say you're going into this market in Texas, you said, right? And you've got a C-class apartment building, and it's obviously poorly managed, 50% occupied, because the, you know, the vacancy rate in the market is more like 7%, right? Something like that. Um, and you're going to go in and you're going to change out the operations and do a half million bucks of, you know, value add or something like that and put some lipstick on it and, and fix the, uh, you know, the hedges and all that stuff. You know, potentially we're going in and we're doing up to 85% of the total cost of the deal, right? So let's say you've got a $5 million acquisition price plus a half million bucks of CapEx. Plus, you know, we obviously have to structure in an interest reserve uh, shortfall. So you end up somewhere around, uh, I don't know, 5.7, 5.8 million of total costs in the deal, right? So we could potentially do up to 85% of that whole thing, right? The 5.7 or 5.8. And then, you know, want to make sure that that's no more than, let's say, 75% of stabilized value, right? Where, you know, so the last dollars of the 5.7 or 5.8, and on the stabilized value end up being no more than 75% of cost. And so we do like a 24 month bridge line because that's more than enough time for you to go in, do the CapEx work, the market's strong, you should be able to you know, do the whatever CapEx work you needed, lease up, pop the rents in the existing tenants and or replace them, and then get it you know, to somewhere around you know, a good stabilized area within that 24 month period, right? At that time, you're doing one of two things, you, know, you might sell it or, you're going to recap it in, with either a local bank or a Fannie Freddie loan or something like that. That's typically how we would look at that type of deal. Now, when you say 85% of total cost, how does that break down? Like, do you give us that 85% of total cost on day one? Or is it like 85% of purchase price and then 85% of the rehab budget as you do the rehab work? It's not 85% day one, right? So whatever your CapEx is and whatever work that needs to be done, you want to make sure that that work actually gets done and that those funds are reserved. So it's going to be 85% of the total budget with holdbacks for all those things, right? So all your equity is going to have to go in, right, like upfront. So let, let's, you know, at the closing table, they're between lender funds and your equity. There's going to have to be 5.8 million bucks total. And then it kind of all goes into the same pool. And then the lender is going to hold an interest reserve and the CapEx funds that you guys are going to pull from during the loan process as you do work. And then as you know, you potentially need, you know, some of those funds. So at $5.8 million, total loan amount is a uh, 4.9 million. And then I guess we subtract that by 5.8 million. Then that means that I guess total, the borrower needs to contribute 870,000. That's 15% of 5.8 million. So does that mean that the, the borrower has to contribute that 870 on day one, and then the rest of it gets paid back as a holdback from rehab funds? Right. So your equity comes to the closing table. Okay. And then depending on how you want to look at it internally, you're either upfront funding reserves, right, for CapEx or whatever. I mean, all the dollars are going to the same place at the end of the day. But typically, the lender is going to do a holdback for those CapEx reserves and interest reserves. Just, you know, and then, you know, as you do work and then as you may have to hit the interest reserve, you would allocate funds from those reserves to go to the deal. And is it kind of like a draw process? 
Because I mean, we do this for our rehab loans where we have the clients break down their project to different phases. They go in, they do the work. And then when they're done with each phase, they send an inspector over to verify all the stuff, send you guys invoices and bank statements. Same thing, right? Submit invoices and then they get reimbursed. Right. Same exact process. Okay. Got it. So yeah, that's very interesting. And I think it's very useful for people who want to get into multifamily properties. And also you mentioned pricing. What would pricing be for something like this? You know, I mean, it's possible that something like this goes into a CLO type of execution. But, you know, for like smaller multifamily deals around 4.9 million bucks, you know, you could probably four or 5%. That's probably in the market for that. Sure. Interest only. And then one or two points, including your broker fee? Yeah, yes. Right. Probably maybe a point in from the lender or the half a point out or, or a full point out and a 1% broker fee. That's right. Okay. So there's usually an exit fee for commercial loans, right? Like one point out as well. Yeah. I mean, there can be. I think if you, most of the lenders that are out there that are like a 1% closing will typically have a half point in the way out too. The advantage to having less points up front, obviously, is less equity you have to bring to the table. So. And what would be, I guess, a closing timeline for something like this? I would say something like this could very easily get done within 30 days if we can get an appraisal. A lot of the appraisals were, you know, like time periods are being quoted right now are like four weeks. I mean, some of them have been like pushing out to six. So a lot of it depends on where it is located and what kind of restrictions have been going on and how busy they are. But I mean, 30 days is most likely very doable. And what kind of other reports do you need for a bridge loan for commercial buildings? Typically, they're going to do an appraisal, a property condition report, and then like a very easy environmental, which is really just like a public records pull <clears throat> that usually comes along with the uh, the PCR. Those are the typical reports we're going to need. The other type of reports, right, is like credit polls and stuff like that, but typical stuff that I'm sure you guys do as well. Yep. Um, they might just be a little bit you know, more extensive, like through LexisNexis type of credit search or something like that. So really the limiting factor is the appraisal just because we have a lack of appraisers and I guess they take a lot longer to do for commercial buildings. Exactly. For the most part, it's the vast majority of the lead time is the appraisal. So because it is a bridge loan, do you guys care at all about like current rent rolls or operating statements or do you just kind of go off whatever thing they write on Excel? You definitely care about operating statements because you get a good feel for like what the current expense level is at the property. Every property is different. And I mean, maybe there's, you know, we're underwriting to like a typical expense load, but you get in and you, you see that there's some expenses that are completely out of whack for whatever reason, right? Um, so you definitely want to pay attention to the operating operating statements. I mean, as far as current rent roll, yeah, you definitely still care. You, you, you know, you want to see where like the current in-place rents are and how much you can pop them, right? And that's going to give you a, a good feel for like potentially how much margin there is, in, you know, in the deal for them to add value. Awesome. You know, for all of our listeners here, I know that we definitely talked a lot about loans and some of you guys might think this is so much, but I encourage you guys to go back and listen to this all over again because this is super useful information. And, you know, even me as a lender, I'm learning a lot because I don't know anything about the commercial side. And then honestly, this is great because when I do get into commercial real estate investing, I know who to talk to because <laughs> you have all the answers for me right here. There you go. Yeah. Um, now, are there any limitations to, I guess, our loan programs like this or something that you think that people should be aware of before trying to get a bridge loan for commercial real estate? I don't know about limitations. You know, what, what I'd say is the right process, right? It, you know, the first steps are really, you know, if somebody wants to get in the commercial space, make sure you have your, like your full operational side, you know, figured out. Like a lot of the guys that I see coming from residential are very comfortable, you know, owning and operating, managing residential properties. But the operational lift on that side for an individual is not like, I would say, very high. In operating and managing multifamily buildings, like especially like larger buildings, it is definitely a different world and a different game. So, you know, if you're looking at moving into the space, I would say one of the first things to do is really like build out, you know, your operational team. 
in whatever market you're going into, right? Align yourself with a good property management company, get to know some contractors in the area. I mean, you know how it's going to go. You're going to get into that property and there's going to be X, Y, Z things that pop up that you weren't you know, ready for. And you're going to scramble and, and find somebody to do that work for you. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, that's, that's probably a good first step. Next step, obviously, you know, you find the property and then, you know, once you've, you know, found the property and you've got your pro forma in place, you know, then it's probably time to bring in a good financer, you know, like me or somebody else, whatever, right, to really start sizing up the deal and arranging the financing. Because, you know, for me, you know, to really like be able to do a good job to put together the deal, I've got to have those, you know, different pieces together, right? Because especially with somebody's first commercial deal, I've got to lean kind of heavily on, you know, who the operational team is that's going to get this project from start to finish. And when should someone reach out to you? Like what phase of the buying process did they reach out to a lender like yourself? Um, you know, if they're out and they've, you know, identified some properties they're interested in, you know, that's probably a good time just to at least touch base. We can start putting together loan terms and stuff once you have like an LOI or at least like a purchase price kind of, you know, negotiated. Uh, a little, little bit harder, you know, if we don't even know what the purchase price is. But, you know, once you're out in the market, you've identified a property, you know, that there's a high level of interest in and maybe contacted the seller at least. That's a good time to bring in, you know, uh, somebody like me. Okay. And I don't know, for commercial real estate, do they care about like pre-approval letters or anything like that? Well, yeah, that's one thing, you know, that doesn't really exist in the commercial real estate space. There is no pre-approval, right? Um, and I, I do have people that contact me from time to time and say, hey, I want to get a pre-approval letter you know, for like how much loan dollars I can get. Well, I have no idea. I, I, it's all based on the economics of the property first, and then I kind of go to the sponsor after that. You know, without that building, without that property and perform, I, I can't really do much. Yeah. So I guess people will tell that to the seller, right? Or to the seller's agent. They should know, right? Hey, um, we can't we really get exactly a term sheet until we actually have this property, again, like I said, a purchase price. Exactly. That's really, that's the great time to bring me in is, you know, when you've identified the property, and you at least you know have a, a very solid feel for what the acquisition price is going to be. Okay, very cool. Now, is there anything else that you think that we should know about about commercial loans that I haven't asked already? I would I would just say you know for people coming from the residential space, I mean I would say learning curve you know for people is just understanding that is a it is a completely different industry. Like there's aspects of commercial loans that don't exist in residential, like commercial loans balloon. There's different ways and different ways to get creative with commercial loans. There's non-recourse lending. And, and, you know, the vast majority of lenders out there are all different, right? And especially when you get in the private space, every lender is different and there's no set program, right? And, and you know, and really like continuously kind of like going out there and looking and actually working with somebody, you know, like a broker that knows and knows how to navigate the markets really well. I mean, I think that's a huge advantage especially for somebody coming into the space, right? I mean, some of the guys that we, we you know, I've, I've worked with in the past and just come into the space, you know, they'll just go to one or two lenders and then it's like, okay, well, I guess that's the answer, right? And they'll end up going to loan terms where they could have done a lot better, right? If they had kind of worked with somebody who really knew how to navigate the space. Um, so, you know, that's what I'd say, just understanding it's a different, different industry and then, you know, just realizing that there's no set answer for any one deal. And there's probably a hundred lenders out there that might do it. And from your experience being in this industry for about 14 years, what does the flexibility look like in terms of being able to negotiate your rates? The way that I like to approach rate negotiations is really understanding really the lender themselves, right? And knowing where their money is coming from, right? Because at, I mean, at the end of the day, every lender is also getting their money from somewhere, right? And how much return they need to give back to 
either their fund or their bank or whatever, right? I mean, that's going to give you kind of some like really understanding that's going to give you the, the best knowledge of how to negotiate rates. I mean, some lenders just like, you know, you just hit a floor, like they have a bare minimum rate and you're at that and there's nothing else you can do. But, you know, I, what I'd say is, you know, really understanding where their money is coming from and, you know, how much it's costing them, that that's going to really tell you like, how much negotiating you can do. I mean, like at the end of the day, you can go back 500 times and continuously ask for a lower rate um, and they might not give it to you. But I mean, I, I think if you if you understand their cost capital and kind of, you know, work through that with them and let them know that you understand that, they, they might have a little bit more leniency in rate. And then also understanding that there's, you know, as far as like the cost of your money and the return that the lender's getting, there's a lots of different ways to get there, right? I mean, if you've got sticker shock because of some rate, you know, there's always a way to move things around to a fee or an exit fee and stuff like that. Because it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's all just a whole return to them. And, you know, there may be different creative ways to get there. And I guess um, just going back to our other question about uh, limitations for a person, an individual getting the loan in the first place, do you guys have any requirements? Like they need to be in the same state or do they need to have owned multifamily real estate in the past? Like, are there any other limitations like that, that people should be aware of? No, not necessarily. Right. I mean, if you're not in the same state as a property, that kind of goes back to the operational team. If you're aligned with a good property manager and you've got, you know, people local that are going to be operating this property for you. No, I mean, that's fine. Lots of people, I've got some borrowers that are in California and they own properties in Charlotte, right. Or Florida or wherever. Right. Um, It's more about like, you know, is the operational side set up and is, you know, the property going to be well maintained as far as like experience level. Part of that goes along with, you know, have, you know, what kind of operational partners you have. Like if you're going to operate this thing yourself, there's zero chance anybody's going to do a loan for you if you haven't done that in the past. Right. But if you've got a, you know, a really good solid property management company, you know, but you know, this is your first multifamily property and it's stabilized, there's no work that needs to be done, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, that, that deal probably gets probably gets done. That's interesting. So I know, I mean, I guess I wish I met you a couple of years ago, because I had an opportunity to buy a multifamily complex over in Florida. But unfortunately, they wouldn't give me a loan because one, I lived out of state. And then two, I didn't have experience with multifamily, even though I've owned several like, you know, single families and small multifamilies, but just not on the commercial side. So yeah. Yeah, it was pro- that's probably a combination of, you know, just whatever lender you're dealing with, you know, that was their certain criteria. And then maybe you didn't approach it. We're like, Hey, I've, I've got this professional manager company that's going to be in here doing all the work for me. And, you know, I mean, like, you know, as when we go into deals, like I've done so many loans at this point, I kind of know what to lead with. Right. And what to really push to the forefront as soon as I get through the door. Right. So, I mean, that, that's one of the, you know, one of the important things that, you know, I can bring to the table and, or like brokers like me, is knowing you know what to focus on up front and knowing what the credit side is going to bring up and handling that before it even becomes an issue yeah wonderful well jake thank you again so much for coming on the show you've definitely filled my brain with a lot of knowledge about commercial real estate and i'm sure that all the listeners here are also having their minds blown with all this information how can people find out more about you you know you can uh do one of two things hit me up on linkedin jake clopton um incredibly easy to find or our website, cloptoncapital.com. There is an enormous amount of information about commercial lending on there. Um, a lot of educational stuff on there as well, like a lot of stuff that I was kind of mentioning here with case studies and loan program stuff. Um, and then, you know, contacts through the website or call our number. Um, I'm always around. This is all I do. So I'm happy to chat about deals. Wonderful. Well, Jake, thank you guys so much for coming on the show and hope to see you again in the near future. Likewise. Thanks, Sean. Take care. I hope you like this episode. You can find the show notes with all the links on our site, everythingrei.com. 
If you like the podcast, please help us grow by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends to listen as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.